Well, good morning. I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Revelation. Our text this morning was uh, read to you, and that is verses 1 through 7 of Revelation chapter 2. We are in a series we're calling Letters from Jesus, uh, because we'll be walking through each of the seven letters that we have recorded in Revelation 2 and 3. And uh, these are letters that Jesus dictates the Apostle John to seven different cities in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And this first letter that we have is addressed to the church, as you see there in verse 1, the church in Ephesus. And because Jesus repeats in every letter, he says, uh, let him who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches, we are to read these letters, not just as letters that were written to churches 2,000 years ago, but we are to read these letters as letters from Jesus to us today in the 21st century. Anyone who has ears, anyone who has the capacity to hear ought to listen to not just what was being said to those churches, but what the Spirit is saying to the churches. That is, every church, every, every group of people that gathers like we've gathered today ought to hear what is being read here. So we receive these as words directly uh, to us. Now, the church in Ephesus uh, was a church that was in a very prominent city in the Roman Empire. Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. Uh, it was a cultural center, a religious center. It, had, it was home to the temple to the goddess Athena, uh, uh, Diana, and uh, it was a very important place. I think in terms of its significance of prominence, like the city of Chicago or Houston, uh, compared to other cities in the United States. A big important cultural center, a center of population, center of, of, um, of uh, civilization. And so that was the, the, the church that was in uh, Ephesus was being addressed here in this first section. And the key problem that we know about this church is that, is what Jesus says in verse 4, but this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, those of you who may be familiar with the King James Version uh, know that that verse is rendered that you've abandoned or left your first love. And to our ears, that almost sounds like uh, you know, your first love was the first person you first fell in love with, the first person you had a crush on, and so we tend to think, well, that first love was the love I had a long, long time ago. But what's being said here is not necessarily Jesus uh, rebuking them for the object of their love, but rather the quality of their love. It's not that they had stopped loving Jesus, it was the way in which they had stopped loving Jesus. It was that the, that, that first quality of their love had since faded gotten stale and diminished in some way. Uh, there's a rather famous line from one of Shakespeare's sonnets that says, love is not love which alters when it alteration finds. In other words, true love, he's saying, doesn't change even when the object of the love changes. But I think we have to be honest and admit to ourselves that sometimes our love or zeal for something can decline and wane, right? Uh, like you got into a hobby you thought it was the greatest thing in the world, and suddenly that hobby sort of like feels a little routine or, or boring. Uh, or you have a favorite restaurant, and you thought, okay, this is the best restaurant. I could go here every day. And pretty, pretty soon the menu just feels a little bit old and, and mundane. Um, this can happen with relationships, even in a marriage. Something that started out to be exciting and and the love is fresh and ardent, it, it kind of becomes ho-hum and routine. We know what that's like. But why does this happen with Jesus? I mean, in, in Jesus, there is no change. We just looked at this last Sunday that Jesus is the one who presents himself as the, 
as the powerful, all-glorious one who shines like John sees in this vision in the prologue, like shining like the sun in its full strength. I mean, he is, he is so powerful. He's so loving. He's so mighty. He never changes. And yet, our love for him can wane and fade. So the question here is, what does Jesus say to a church whose love grew stale? What does Jesus say to a church whose love grows stale? What would Jesus say to you? If for some reason this morning you're to realize that your love for Jesus has gotten stale and faded. Well, three things Jesus says. First of all, he gives them a commendation. That's what they're doing right. He gives them a rebuke. That's where they've gone wrong. And then he gives them a remedy. That's how to make it right. So in this passage, we'll see that to to a church or to a believer whose love for Jesus has gone stale, he gives a commendation, what they're doing right, rebuke, what they're doing, where they've gone wrong, and remedy, how to make it right. So first of all, let's look at the commendation, what they're doing right. Look at verses uh, 2 through 3. I know your works, Jesus says, your toil and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. The word toil here in verse 2 refers to this exhausting labor. It's a kind of work that you do, and after you're done, you just, all you can do is lay on your back and sleep because it's so exhausting. You know how it feels. This is the toil that this church has gone through. And Jesus says, I know it. I know that you're working really hard. I know that you have, have been patient. Patience, in fact, is the very thing that John wants the churches uh, to have because he says earlier in verse 9 of chapter 1, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I mean, these are things that Jesus wants for his people. And so he's commending them, and we can boil it down to two things. He's commending them for their diligence and for their discernment. They worked really, really hard. They knew what it was to be busy. Uh, this was the kind of church that when you made an, made an announcement that we need volunteers in the nursery, I mean, everybody would go flooding to the sign-up sheet of the Welcome Center right away. I mean, no problem getting people to volunteer for stuff. It's a sort of church where people would stay up late working on church product, pro- projects. People would show up to every church work day. I mean, this was a hard-working, diligent church. And it wasn't that they just had a fluster of activity. They were really discerning, too. They knew their Bibles really well. It was a sort of church that when the preacher gets up and says, turn your Bible to such and such a passage, you hear the the shuffling of the pages together because everyone's eager to learn what the Bible says. They had the discernment to tell the difference between a false teacher and a true teacher. They knew theology. They knew their scriptures. And they loved it. And they had a zeal for this. So so Jesus commends them for their, their diligence Underneath that, that's the patient endurance, the toil and the labor, and for their their discernment. They could tell the difference between right and wrong. Now, a couple things about Jesus' commendation. What he's telling them, here's what you're doing right. A couple things I want to point out about this, and that is, first of all, it was was sincere. It was a sincere commendation. The reason why I say this is because sometimes I, I feel that when we hear a compliment or a word of commendation, we all kind of cringe and say, okay, but what's coming next? All right, do you know what I mean by that? Have you ever heard of a compliment sandwich where, where someone comes, maybe it's your boss, they come up to you and they say, by the way, great job turning in a report, that reporter, whatever, whatever he has to do. Um, it, was, it was really miserable and it wasn't right and there's was a lot of mistakes on it. And then and there, there comes the criticism. And then, oh, by the way, nice haircut. So what does he do? He just, he sandwiched really his criticism between two compliments. And, and so what, what that does for us is it, it leaves us not able to trust when someone's actually commending us for something, right? 
because we're wondering, okay, what's behind this? What's, when, is my, when, when is my teeth going to bite down on that hard criticism? I've got through the soft bread of the compliments. Now here comes the criticism. You know what I'm talking about. Now, Jesus doesn't do that. When Jesus commends people, his commendation is absolutely sincere. These are things that Jesus genuinely loves and appreciates in his people. Hey, diligence. You ought to be a diligent Christian. <laughs> discernment. You ought to have discernment as a Christian. A Christian without diligence is like a marathon runner that stops running at mile 20 and he still has 6.2 miles left to go. He didn't finish the race because he wouldn't, wasn't persistent. He wasn't diligent. A, a, a Christian without discernment is like a marathon runner who gets confused as to what the route of the race is and gets turned off somewhere and never finishes the race because he got bamboozled as, the, as to the direction. So yes, we need both diligence and discernment and these things are really important. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have said them. Jesus' commendation is a sincere commendation. And second, his commendation is nuanced, okay? It's nuanced. Now, I know we have children in here. I, kids, I'm so glad that you're here. I, I'm happy when you get to go to junior church, but I'm glad you're here too. What in the world do I mean by nuanced? Well, a few weeks ago, someone asked some of my kids to weed their garden, and they taught them the difference, and my, my kids know this already, but, but this is, illustrates it well, the, between uh, the things that you ought to pull up and the things you ought not to pull up when you weed a garden, right? If you have nuance, you can tell the difference between a weed and a flower. And someone without nuance goes into the garden and they just start pulling everything up because they can't tell the difference. They don't have nuance. Jesus' commendation is nuanced in that he can see a church that is struggling and failing in a major area. And then we're going to get to that in a little bit. That, that is, they've forsaken their, the love they had of the first. But just because Jesus sees a major failing doesn't mean he writes them off completely which is what you and I often tend to do with people, right? We see, we see if someone has failed in a certain area and lacking nuance, we just rip up the whole garden and they say, well, they, they're completely evil. They, we, we don't want anything to do with them. But, but Jesus, if you remember, the vision that John had of Jesus in Revelation 1, he sees Jesus as having a sword coming from his mouth. And I told you last week, we're not meant to believe that Jesus literally has a sword coming out of his mouth. Rather, what we are to understand is that Jesus speaks words of accurate judgment. When Jesus speaks, he has the discernment, the nuance to divide good from evil. When Jesus wants to judge, when Jesus wants to crit crit critique us, he doesn't come to us with a club and just smashes everything to bits. He comes with a surgeon's scalpel that cuts with, with utter precision. And I think that we ought to learn something from Jesus' nuance that, that we are, we're, we're, we can be so uh, blunt in the way that we, we view people or we view movements and we just write someone off. And Jesus, instead, he says, I, I, a rebuke is coming. And the commendation is sincere. And Jesus gives the difference between good and evil. He judges with that two-edged sword. Now, the commendation that Jesus gives is a commendation for their diligence and for the discernment, and it's a sincere and nuanced commendation. I want to pause here just to make some application to our lives here. The very fact that Jesus speaks to a deeply flawed church and gives them words of sincere commendation means that we ought to be willing to receive Jesus' commendation to ourselves. I wonder if you're the sort of person, as I tend to be, who tend, tends to think, I can't receive any words of affirmation from God. 
because, because I feel so unworthy of them. I mean, I'm, am, I, am I not, so, sometimes we think, I'm not allowed to think that somehow God is genuinely pleased with me. Jesus is actually saying, here are things that I'm genuinely pleased with. There's no insincerity. There's no piling this up like the bread on a compliment sandwich. No, Jesus says, I'm pleased with this. Jesus is actually giving them words of affirmation. Let me just encourage you with this, my friends. Have you been diligent? Have you been discerning? Jesus notices that. And maybe you're afraid, I'm afraid if I get a compliment from God, then it's going to make me proud. No, any compliment, any words of affirmation from God gives you this sort of like beaming smile the little kid has when he comes up to his dad and shows him a drawing he, he did, and the dad says, good job. That's a great drawing. And you're filled with this, this humble, non-superior feeling kind of pride. It's, it's not a pride in what I've done. It's not a pride that gives, makes me look down at other people. It's simply that feeling of joy that comes when you're noticed by someone who matters. And when Jesus notices something, that's meant to encourage us, not to inflate our ego, not to cause us to feel superior. No, no, a true combination from God doesn't generate a spirit of superiority, but a spirit of glad-heartedness. And Jesus' commendation of these people is sincere. It could be that you have a hard time believing Jesus' commendation because you've never gotten that from other people. You might have, to have, have had a parent that, that never, never complimented you or, or, or any compliment from a boss or, or a close a co-worker was just always insincere or, or the preface to something, but Jesus is not like that. Jesus sincerely and in a nuanced way commends a church, even one that's deeply flawed. Now you think, well, what about the areas of my life that's, that are messed up? I mean, I, I'm, I'm very flawed. I'm very aware of my flaws. What if Jesus will get to that? <laughs> and he does. So to a church that, whose love has gone, gone stale, Jesus gives commendation. That's what they're doing right. Second, he gives them a rebuke, okay? He gives them a rebuke. That's where they've gone wrong. What is this rebuke? Well, we read it in verse 4. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at the first. And remember, I said earlier at the beginning, this is not abandoning the first love. It's not the problem with the object of love. It's the quality of love. It's the kind of love that you had at the beginning. When you first met, met me, it was like a, a blazing, crackling fire, and now it's just kind of died down into like the slow-burning coals. It's not It's not. A flame anymore, or it's kind of like a cup of coffee that, gets, that sits out overnight, and you come to it, and you get confused. Was this the cup of coffee I just set down, or is this the old one? You put it in your mouth, and you realize, okay, that was the old one. That is, it is just cooled down, or like maybe a, a flower that's just wilting. Uh, I'm just trying to think of examples of what stale love. Uh, so when someone leaves the bag of crackers open, and you come to it, and they're like drooping, that, this is, it's still there, but it's just not fresh. It's not crackling with warmth. It's not piping hot. It's not crunchy anymore. It's not new anymore. It's, it's limp. It's diminished. It's stale. Jesus is saying, the kind of love that you had for me when you first met me, 
has become stale. Now, I, I want to drill down into a little more carefully what the problem was and what it wasn't. The problem was not merely a lack of emotion, because I, I think we have to be careful here. We tend to see the word love, and immediately we, we, um, we download into love a lot of emotion. And, and Jesus is not just saying you lack emotion, because it's far deeper than that. Um, the relationship between uh, emotion and love, it, it's a, well, having a lot of emotion without true love would be like getting into your car in neutral and putting the pedal down, and there's a lot of noise, maybe a lot of exhaust coming out of the, uh, the exhaust pipe, but it's not going anywhere. And it's possible for us to have a lot of emotion, a lot of noise, a lot of exhaust fumes, but not going anywhere. It, so Jesus is not merely talking about emotion. He's talking about love. He's talking about the deepest part of you, what the Bible refers to as the heart, not the center of the emotions, but the center of your entire being. It's, it's the cockpit of your, of your person. It is your very personality. It's the center of who you are. That's where the problem is. The problem is also not merely something in the past. It's not that Jesus is saying, "Go turn back the clock. You can't turn back the clock. It's not mere emotion. It's not merely something in the past. What the problem is, is the quality of love that was there when you first understood who Jesus is has somehow diminished. Now, how do you notice this? How would you notice if this is a problem? Well, the first thing I think we should recognize is that you might not notice it unless someone told you. Because the people in this church, they likely, I would have to assume, that they didn't even know that their love had grown stale. Which to me is a rather sobering reality that Jesus had to say, listen, the main thing you ought to be doing, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, is the thing you're not doing. So, and the reason why it's hard to tell is because a stale love can easily be masked by a lot of activity and learning. A lot on the church calendar, a lot of busyness, a lot of things you're doing can easily mask, and, and this is true of the church in Ephesus. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, you, you're doctrinally discerning, but all the endurance and the toil and the labor and the diligence and the doctrinal discernment kind of mask the fact that they, their love had gone stale. So how would you know? Well, let me, let me give you some evidences, not from this text, but from other parts of the Bible. You might, your love might be growing stale when you're too busy to spend time in focused prayer. When you're too busy. And the reason why I say that is because I remember that story from Luke chapter 10 about Mary and Martha. Do you remember this one? Where there are two sisters. If you're unfamiliar with the story, there's two sisters and they're friends of Jesus and Jesus is coming to their house. Now, if, if Jesus was kind of coming to your house, I'm pretty sure you'd want to clean and make sure they're clean the house, make sure there was something... Uh, to set before him, which was one well, Martha's mind. Martha's like, Jesus is coming, like, you know, wipe the counters and, and get everything clean, cleaned up and make sure that the, the, the muffins are perfectly golden brown on the top. I mean, everything just has to be perfect. But Mary had a different focus. The thing that excited Mary about Jesus coming to her house was Jesus. And so while Mar Martha is busy in the kitchen, Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to Jesus teach. And, and when Martha got upset about that, Jesus said to her, Martha, Martha, you are 
are busy about many things. You're worried, upset about many things, but few things are needed, actually only one, and Mary has chosen that one thing. And if you just take honest stock of your life and of your schedule and realize you have scheduled prayer and sustained reflection on God's Word completely out of your day, that's a sign, at least a possible sign, a likely sign that what is, was true of the church in Ephesus might be true of you, might be true of us. Another possible evidence suggested by the text is that you might, your love might have grown stale if you're often preoccupied with how wrong or misguided other people are. And I say that because what Jesus commended of the, of the people there, of the, the believers in Ephesus, was, was a good thing. I mean, they had doctrinal discernment to, to say, these are false, false apostles, they're, they're coming with wrong teaching. In fact, he says in verse 6, uh, this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. I mean, they had doctrinal discernment, and they really could tell who was right and who was wrong. But it's possible for us to become obsessed with that. And the thing that makes it difficult is that there are a lot of things in this world to be, <laughs> that we could potentially... Um, we can be potentially completely obsessed with how wrong it is. Like, oh, that is so wrong, or that group or that movement is just so wrong, and those people are doing something that's so wrong, and, and pretty soon all the emphasis and all the attention of your mind and energy becomes on how wrong everybody else is, and, and you suddenly lack the, the insight on yourself, the self-awareness to realize, well, where's my heart? Has my love gone, gone stale somehow? And those are possible evidences of stale love. Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector? This story that Jesus tells about two men who went to the temple to pray. The one was a Pharisee. He had, this guy was theologically um, trained. Uh, he was an extremely religious man. And then there was this outcast of society. It's a, a tax collector. He's considered to be a really immoral guy. And they both go to pray, and when the Pharisee stands up to pray, he talks to God. Oh, yeah, we should be talking to God. He's praying. Yeah, we should be praying. But in his prayer, he says to God, thanks, God, that I'm not like that guy. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I've prayed like that before. That's a sign of love that has gone stale. That's potentially so. Now, how can, and I'll, I'll just say along those lines too, our tendency is to compensate for personal failure by increasing criticisms of others. That's our tendency. Okay, this is what Jesus is rebuking them for. He's saying, your love has gone, it's diminished, it's gone stale, it's, not, it's lacking its original freshness. Now, here's another question. I asked, like, how might we know this? I gave a couple evidences. Now, the other, another question I want us to know and, and consider is, how, can, how does this happen? How does someone who initially fell in love with Jesus and realized that Jesus is my Savior, I, how does that, how does stale love happen? Well, let me, let me give you four possible ways in which love can grow stale. One, love can turn stale when I isolate myself from other people. I don't mean just not showing up to church. I don't mean just not showing up to the, the gatherings of believers. I mean there can be a kind of emotional isolating. There can be kind of a, there's a withdrawing. Why do, I, why do I point that as a possible way in which your love can grow stale? Because one of the primary ways in the New Testament that we are given in which love gets fanned into flame is by the fellowship with other believers. This is, this is the, the point of Hebrews 10.25 when, when the writer says, 
You need to, don't, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Don't stop gathering. You need, to, you need to gather with one another to exhort to love and good works. The effect of intentional Christian unity is to spark into a fire the love that we have for God. And when, that, when it's not there, it, it's quite natural why your love would grow cold. It's like, it would, it would be like if you had a fireplace and you separated out logs. You pull a log over here and you pull a log over here, and pretty, pretty soon those logs are going to are gonna diminish in their heat. They, they need the, the heat of one another to keep the heat of the whole sustained. And so love can diminish. It can grow stale when we isolate ourselves from others. A second way, love can grow stale when you carve out spaces for sin in your life. Um, when, you, when you create a margin to do things or act in ways that you know Jesus' vices, that you know Jesus saved you from, and then you go back and you carve a space for that in your life, and here's what happens. Initially, when you, when you first realized who Jesus is and what he saved you from, you were absolutely repulsed by the sins, by the, the habit of thinking, the habit of things you did that Jesus was saving you from. I mean, you viewed these things as like chains around your hands and arms that Jesus comes and steps in as your hero and he breaks the chains. But then you kind of wander back to the chain and you see how it fits back on your, on your wrist and you're like, oh, it, it doesn't, well, I don't know if it really changed me that much anymore. And your love for your Savior grows cold. You know the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, and then you begin to grow, and you don't feel so much like a wretch anymore, and Amazing Grace doesn't seem as amazing anymore, because you've carved out space for sin. A third reason, that, uh, well, j- just a verse for that, Matthew 24, 12, Jesus says, because iniquity shall be multiplied, the love of many shall wax cold. A third reason, love can turn stale when I allow a personal disappointment to determine my view of God. We're taught, God causes all things to work together for good, and then something happens in my life, and it didn't feel good, and, it, and I, God let it happen. Why did God let this happen? And then pretty soon my affection for God begins to wane because I thought God would act in a way that I decided would be good, and it wasn't good, and my love grows stale. And a fourth reason, and I think this final reason is probably the big one. And it's actually going to take the most explanation because it's the most subtle one, right? But I think it's the big one. Why our love tends to grow stale. And it is this. Are you ready? Love can turn stale when I rely on my own virtue as the source of stability in my life. There's different ways I can phrase that, but this is the best way I know how, is that love can grow stale when I begin to rely on my own virtue, my own achievements, my own self-discipline as a source of relational stability. How does this work? Well, think about what, and if you can't remember what it was like when you first got saved, as I can hardly remember personally because I was so young. I mean, it wasn't like I had a dramatic turnaround uh, experience. I was talking with my wife about this uh, a, a couple nights ago w- regarding this message. Like, both of us got saved when we were so young, just like many of you. And it's not like we could remember, oh yeah, back in my early 20s when my life was a mess, and then suddenly God ca- got my life and turned me around, and my, what passion and ardor and fervency I had. I can't remember that because I was so young. And yet, I can remember times in which my experience of Jesus' love and His nearness was so great and, and so tangible, right? And, and when that first happened, 
whether it was your initial experience of coming to Christ for the first time or on a time when you you felt like I know that God is with me and he's changing me and he's convicting me okay you knew at that point that you're like drowning in icy cold water and you couldn't swim and and your limbs are 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 freezing up and you know you can't touch the bottom and you try to reach up and you can't touch anything and you try to reach out and you're not reaching you can't reach any shore and you can't move and suddenly you hear a voice that says looks like you're in a little bit of trouble and they throw you a life preserver and all you can do is kind of lean on it and let that person take you to safety. And, and you realize you were dead and now you're alive. You were lost and now you're found. But now that you've been found, you begin to feel a little better about your situation. And you don't feel like you're quite as lost anymore. And you start being consistent with some things. And the, the gravitational pull of your heart is, to gonna, is going to be to lean on your virtue and performance instead of leaning on the grace of God. That's what tends to happen. Our hearts have this. It's, it's like the gravitational pull of our hearts. The, the more improved our life becomes, the more we grow in virtue, the more the tendency is to be, is to reason, and that's why Jesus loves me. And it's a little bit like, the drift is a little bit like what I experienced when I was a little kid, and I go to the beach with my parents, and you know when the surf is hitting the coast at an angle, and you're playing in the water, and you're playing in the water, and you look up as where you thought your parents were in the sand, and you realize they're not there anymore. Why? Because little by little by little, the waves have kind of like driven you over, and you didn't realize how far you got. This is... The, the tendency of our hearts to lean upon our performance, our virtue, our moral achievements is, is like, the, it's like the drift of the ocean. And, and it pulls us, and pretty soon, grace doesn't seem amazing, and Jesus doesn't seem like a mighty hero, and our sin doesn't seem that bad. What's happened? Our love has grown stale. I, I think one way to illustrate this is from the life of uh, a man named David Brainerd. Now, um, I've asked for a raise of hands. Is, how many of you heard of David Brainerd? He, David Brainerd lived in New England. He was the son-in-law of Jonathan Edwards. Um, 17th century, he died of tuberculosis when he was 29 years old. He was a missionary to the Native Americans, and he left behind some incredible uh, journals in which he talks about his, um, his struggle in his relationship with, with Christ. Now, you, if you read his journals, they might sound to us as pretty depressing. And I think one of the reasons is that he tended, just like just my tendency, I tend to write in my journal when I'm, when I'm down. I think, I think so you're reading him at some pretty low points. But um, he was uh, initially, he went to Yale University in its early stages uh, when a revival was, was breaking out in, in the New England area. And when, when a revival breaks out, there's always good and bad effects. And one of the effects is that some people can get really zealous and... Um, judgmental, he actually got expelled from Yale for criticizing his teachers for being super unspiritual. Uh, about one of his teachers, he said, uh, he said publicly, and it got back to this teacher, he said, I think that teacher, um, uh, no, he said, he said, a chair has more grace than that teacher has in him. Uh, and that, that got back to him too. Uh, so he was, he was criticizing the fact, thankfully, the Lord tempered his, his pride as, as the years went on, but he was a passionate young man. But he records what I'm, the, the point I'm trying to make is, is how that our love can grow dull 
even in the best things that we're trying to do. And he says this in, his, in a journal. The language has been modernized to make it a little easier to understand. He says, when I was about 20 years old, I was engaged more than ever in the duties of religion. I became strict and watchful over my thoughts, words, and actions. I thought I must be very serious before entering the ministry. I spent much time every day reading my Bible and praying. I gave great attention to Sunday sermons. In short, I had a very good outside and trusted entirely in my religious duties. So I thought, he says, I thought that through my repenting and through my praising and seeking him, I could make good steps toward heaven. When my heart seemed full of love and faith, I felt that God would be affected by that and would hear my prayers for sincerity. In other words, I healed myself with my duties. I told myself, God must accept you because look at how wholeheartedly you serve and seek him. Now, here is the problem. The more I tried to love God with all my soul, the more I saw how little I really loved him. The more I saw a soft heart, the more I felt how hard my heart was. One night, I remember in particular, I was walking alone, and, uh, and I had opened such a view of my sin that I feared the ground would open under my feet and become my grave. I saw it was uh, impossible for me, after the utmost pains, to answer the demands of God's law. I saw that it was selfish for me. I, I, it condemned me for my selfish and angry and fearful and envious and lustful thoughts. Then, after a considerable time spent in such distress as one morning, I was alone and saw that all my projects to effect my salvation were utterly in vain. He said this, when I had been fasting, praying, obeying, I thought I was aiming at the glory of God, but I was doing it all for my own glory. As long as I was doing all this to earn my salvation, I was doing nothing for God, all for me. I realized that all my struggling to become worthy was an exercise in self-worship. I was actually trying to avoid God as Savior. I was not worshiping Him, but using Him. I think what Brainerd does there is he, in, a, in his utter honesty, he's saying, here's what the heart can tend to do. It, instead of worshiping God, adore, adoring God and Christ for who He is, our hearts can use, can use God instead of worshiping God. And in so doing, subtly, like drifting on the coast of a shore or like the slow fade of a, of a flower that lacks water, our love for Christ can grow stale. That's how it happens. Now, if you're ready, like I... I tend to be ready after hearing a section of a sermon like that to hear, okay, what's the remedy? That's what Jesus gives us here. Here is the remedy. So we looked at Jesus gives words of commendation. He gives words of rebuke. He tells us where we've gone wrong. And finally, he tells us how to make it right. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. This is, Jesus is so simple. He gives us these three steps. You know I love threes. He gives us three steps, chronological order, and they're simply this. Remember, repent, and do. Remember, repent, and do. Now, let me just, in order to explain what the remedy is, I have to tell you what it's not. What Jesus is saying Jesus is not telling us that we somehow have to get more emotional. There are, there are ways, there are ways you can stoke up your emotions. And when someone has an experience like this, in most cases, I would almost dare say in all cases, the emotions are going to be there. They're, they have to be there. But Jesus is not simply saying, 
get in your driveway and rev the engine until it sounds really noisy and there's a lot of exhaust, Jesus is saying, put it in gear. You, right now, you're in neutral. You need to put it, your, the gear of your heart has to connect with the engine of Christ. And mere emotion is not going to do it. But putting your heart in the gear that is connecting your, your motives and your emotions with who Je- the engine who Jesus is, that, that is, that is what's entailed in the remedy. And, and how to do this then? How to put it in gear? Well, the word is here, remember. And remember is, if you think about the way the word is, it's a little bit gra- graphic that re-met. Like, think of something that's been dismembered. Okay, think of something that's all in pieces. It's not functioning because you've got a piece of it over here and a piece of it over here and a piece over here. And when you remember something, when you remember an event in your life or a face comes to your mind, it's like the pieces are coming together again for you. You're remembering what was dismembered. What are they to remember? They are to remember who Jesus is and what he's done. In, in, in our minds and in, I think in their minds, the work of Jesus was scattered and it wasn't brought together into a unified whole and Jesus is saying, remember, remember from where you fell. And this process of remembering is, I think this is what uh, Paul was trying to get the Galatians to do in Galatians chapter 3 verse 1. He's talking to some people who have begun to rely upon their own works, their own uh, uh, adherence to the law as their relational security. And, and Paul says, what's happened to you? Who has bewitched you that you should abandon this? You, he says, before whose eyes Jesus was portrayed as, oh, publicly portrayed as crucified. And I think what Paul was doing there is he's reminding them of the kind of preaching that Paul would give to them. Paul would remind them of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. So I want to remind you of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. If, if you're going to put the, if you're going to put your heart back in gear, if you're going to connect your affections and your emotions with the engine of Jesus, then think about his life. Think, think about Jesus who confronted sin with such courage and yet who embraced sinners with such compassion. Think about a, a mangled, stubby-handed leper who, who had his face covered up because, because of the effects of the disease, and he comes hobbling toward Jesus, and he says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reaches out, and he touches the guy. And he says with full sincerity, I want to cleanse you. Be cleansed. And everyone is, is, is both horrified that Jesus would touch the unclean and and amazed that this man was transformed. This is the Jesus that stood outside the tomb of his dead friend Lazarus. And with the other people around him who are crying because he had been dead for four days, Jesus weeps. He weeps with them, and yet he stands outside that tomb, not just weeping, but with the authority of one who gives life and says, Lazarus, come on out. And Lazarus comes out. This is Jesus in his life. He's comforting people. He's healing people. He's confronting wrongdoing, and he's doing it with such gentleness and balance and sincerity. And yet this is the Jesus whose life ought to have ended with honor and accolades and elevation and praise, and yet now see him hanging on a cross. 
Why is he hanging on a cross? He doesn't deserve to be there. Of course he doesn't. He hangs there, his body racked with pain. People have spit upon him. They've yanked out his beard. He's got this, uh, this label over, this, like a card or a board over the top of his head that says, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. He lost all his friends in one moment, and a few of them who came back, the Bible says they watched him from a distance. His mother had to watch him die. And, and that, the worst of it, the absolute worst of it was, I mean, the thousands of people have been crucified. The, the pain that Jesus experienced was not the ultimate pain. It was the cry that he gave out when he hung there and, and said to God, his Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was experiencing every form of pain to a degree that you and I can never experience. It was infinite pain, infinite agony. It was the separation, his separation from his Father. And if Jesus had stayed dead, if the fourth day after he was dead, and the fifth day, and the month, and years, if he had stayed dead, then his crucifixion would have simply been the most tragic injustice ever, because no one, Jesus ought not to have died, because he was not guilty. And if he had stayed dead, then that would have been the nail on the coffin of God's justice and love. And on the third day, in the garden there where the tomb was, there's a lady named Mary, and she's crying, and she's crying so hard, her eyes are swollen, there's tears in her eyes, she can't even see you straight. And she sees someone in front of her, she thinks it's the gardener. And so she says to him, sir, if you've taken him away, please tell me, I'll go take his body away. And the gardener is Jesus, and says, Mary, he's alive. And his, his resurrection from the dead proved this, that the agony he experienced was not because he was a sinner, but because you and I are. Because we deserve that sort of separation. You and I deserve that. It helps us see the depth of our sin and the glory of God and the grace that He shows us in sending Jesus. And 40 days later, He ascends to heaven, not because He needed to go up to get there, but because He was showing His disciples and us that now He is the resurrected King of the universe. Remember that. When your love grows cold, bring the pieces back together so that what has grown stale would be fresh again. What has grown cold would become hot and crackling and burning again. Remember, see from his head, his hands and feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Remember from where you have fallen and repent. <laughs> and, and this repentance is the change of mind that we have to make when we realize how wrong we've been. <laughs> when we realize that we've been in the wrong gear, we've been driving in the wrong gear. And, and we need to, it simply means just redirect your mind, change your mind about the way you're thinking, whether, whether it's been the thinking that, I've been doing so much for good for God. How could I possibly be wrong? Like, that's the kind of thinking that we have to repent of. That's the sort of change of mind that you and I must have. 
or, or I've carved out a little space for some, some sin in my life, and it, I have not seen any big consequences yet. That's the kind of thinking that you, not, that you need to repent of, and you can repent of it if you remember who Jesus is. That's repent. Martin Luther, who famously nailed those theses, 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, and there's all kinds of debate as to whether he actually nailed it there, what happened, but, but we do have what he wrote. And his very first thesis, it's like a list of all these statements, was one that is, rings absolutely true to, as much today as it did those many years ago. It was this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. That means repentance is not just something you do a long time ago, you never have to do again. Repentance is something you do every time you remember who Jesus is. <laughs> and every time you realize you've turned away from Him. <laughs> My dear friends, repentance ought not to be an unusual thing for a church. It's the normal thing for all of us. And woe to the church that stops repenting. Or to the church that that seems surprised that for anybody to point out something we're doing wrong. I was sharing with the membership class earlier this morning when it comes to, to believer-to-believer relationships and someone points out something in, in our lives. To be surprised that we'd be doing something wrong when we have, as believers, supposedly admit that we are so wrong that Jesus had to die for us. Why would we be, why would we be surprised if, anything, if anyone pointed out something else? Well, it's just to be the rhythm of our lives faith and repentance. Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Did you, re- did you receive Him by telling Him how good you are? Did you receive Him by telling you Him how little you actually need to be saved? No, you receive Him by saying, Lord Jesus, help me. That's the way you continue. And finally, do. He says, do the same, do, the, do those works. The, the works you did at first, you say, what works? I don't know what it's going to look like for you. For, for a woman that visited Jesus, it looked like this. She comes into this house where Jesus was at dinner with a Pharisee named Simon, and she takes a bottle of expensive perfume, breaks it open, pours it over Jesus' feet, weeps over, over her, her sins, and, and it's an extravagant gift, and th- this Pharisee, Simon, is, is shocked, offended, um, insulted, and Jesus knows his thoughts. And Jesus says, I want to tell you a little story, Simon. Jesus is the master illustrator, right? He said, he said there's, there's two men, they owed both owed some money. One owed a huge amount, another a little amount. Their, 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 uh, their debtor, or the one that they're in debt to, forgave them both. He said, who's going to love him more? And Simon says, well, the one who owed the most. And Jesus said, exactly. He who is forgiven much loves much. And the sort of extravagance that ought to flow from your life, I don't know exactly what that's going to be, but only you, can, only you can decide that. When, you, when your love for Christ is refreshed, he was forgiven much, loves much. He was forgiven little, <clears throat> loves little. And as we look at Jesus, as we remember who he is, may our love for him never grow stale.